Hi, this is Tom Zoller, creator of Long Distance, Love and Capes, and best known for creating anybody for Dial H for Hero in Superboy number 35. And you are listening to the Quarter Bin Podcast. This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 71st episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Adventure Comics 479 from DC, cover dated March 1981. And as Ron Sadowski requested last episode, this is an actual, factual, random selection. But first, a little feedback. On episode 68, Darren Sutherland wrote in to say, again, how much my geek history has in common with his. Hi, Professor Allen. I had tons of fun listening to your coverage of Man Bat. I apparently have a similar frame of reference to you because my father bought me several hardback comic collections when I was growing up in the 1970s, including Batman from the 30s to the 70s, as well as collections for Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, Tarzan, and Wonder Woman. These books really helped solidify my love of sci-fi and adventure comics, which are why titles like Ron Randall's Trekker, Mike Schultz's Xenozoic Tales, and of course the various creations of Mike Grell later became my favorite comics. Of course, Darren and his wife Ruth run two podcasts related to properties he referenced there, Warlord Worlds and Trekker Talk. He added that between this episode and the new podcast from Iowa's Kyle Benning, Superman, and Captain Marvel's Power Hour, he's had the opportunity to revisit those wonderful gifts from his father. I've been following along with Superman from the 30s to the 70s, and Shazam from the 40s to the 70s, listening to Kyle's show. Have a fantastic day, Darren. Well, thank you, Darren. Tell Ruth I said hello. I also got an email from a new feedbacker, Brett Cahan, who again had some similar experiences. Professor, I've been listening to your podcast on and off for the past few months. You seem to have a lot of the same interests as me, and I think I would really enjoy hanging out with you. Well, that's nice, Brett. I recently hung out with Michael Bailey, and that was cool. J.C. Byro, Michael Bradley, Al Gerding, all good podcasters that I've enjoyed hanging out with. And they're shag. Back to Brett. I'm 48, and feel you're about that same age, too. I am 50. I share your dry sense of humor, and therefore find you quite funny. You said that you grew up in Thailand, and I've been living there for 19 years. I would love to hear your stories. And one thing I found out from you today is that you liked Batman from the 30s to the 70s. When I was in third grade, my mother was a head librarian at Farmington, Connecticut. I kept that book on permanent checkout. I read it so often, but she left after a year, and I barely remember the stories now. I'd love to look through it again. Anyway, keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much, Britt. Great to hear from you. At some point, talking about Thailand will come up on the show. Again, thanks for the feedback. Really appreciate it. Episode 69, our latest Doom 2099 episode, 
generated a good amount of comments. Great listener, Kansan Grigorujo, admitted that this is just about where he jumped off the Doom 2099 bandwagon until Warren Ellis took over the title. And given that wacky cyberspace story we're in the middle of, I think I can almost give him a pass on that one. Ruth Sutherland appreciated my Princess Bride reference, and Gene Hendricks in the Hammer Podcasts, Luke Giaconetti from Earth Destruction Directive, and Rob Lands from Canada, all offered Hail Doom, or similarly appropriate responses to the podcast. Robert Ward said it was about time we got back to Doom, which I totally agreed with. And Zeb Oswalt reported that it was a cool podcast, as always. He reported flipping through the issue once at Walmart and having no idea that the FF in this issue was just an online construct. But that's what this podcast is all about. Education. It's what I do. Bradley Null of the eventually upcoming, fingers crossed, Null and Void podcast, or something like that, wrote in, Always glad to hear the alternate future of Doom the Great, as retold by those who truly understand. Very enjoyable podcast that everyone should listen to. Great show, Bradley Man. To which I say, great email, Bradley Man. And finally, Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics wrote in with some thoughts about the Hulk and Thing mashup from that issue. Professor Allen, yet another Doomalicious episode. I live for these. Yeah, I can see that. Regarding the Green Hulk Thing hybrid, I always took it to be an homage to when She-Hulk replaced the Thing in the FF lineup. But maybe that was just my brain trying to find a good excuse. I guess back when I was young, I connected dots in a way that now my much older and easily less creative brain refuses to. Now, I actually like that a lot, Clinton. That's, that's probably what was going on. That, that probably was the reference that they were drawing. Clinton agrees with me that the cyberspace aspect of the story went on for way too long. Even back then, I knew that a story that seemed to span ten issues, when it probably should have been three or four, was a bad idea. Keep up the good work and continue bringing us these amazing quarter bin gems. Thanks, Clinton. Yes, I am almost certain that when we revisit future Latveria in episode 79, they finally do indeed make it out of cyberspace. Oops, spoilers. Thanks for all the feedback, everybody. It is great to receive, truly a blessing. But enough about that. We've got a comic book to cover. Adventure Comics 479 had a cover price of 50 cents, meaning I acquired this book for half off the original manufacturer's suggested retail price. The cover, by Carmine Infantino and Bob Smith, features two young teens, a boy and a girl, with a number of costumed characters seeming to grow out of them. They're here! Superheroes, heroines, and villains created by you! The new comic featuring the characters suggested by your fan mail. That's right. Starting this issue, Adventure Comics presents Dial H for Hero. And first up, a little history about this concept. Most of this is taken from editor Jack C. Harris's column in this issue. By the way, the letter page is called Dial L for Letters. Whoa. 
dial Q for quarter bin. That could work. Anyway, the story is that DC publisher Jeanette Kahn had some success publishing a user-generated magazine called Kids, and she wanted to do something similar at DC. She ran her idea by Len Wein, who remembered the Dial H concept that ran in the 1960s. The idea featured one-off heroes, which seemed to dovetail perfectly with Khan's goal of getting reader-submitted characters. In the months leading up to this issue, Len and writer Marv Wolfman went to conventions armed with two-page advertisements for the concept and loads of release forms, and they gathered ideas for characters. And here we are. Now, in addition to fulfilling Ron Sadowski's request for randomness, this book also fits into the anthology format, similar to the Showcase 94 issue we did recently. And we got a lot of positive feedback about that, about covering anthology books more often. And here we are. This issue has three separate Dial H stories in it, and we're going to cover them all. So let's take a break here, play a promo, and come back with our first story. What is it that makes a superhero? Superpowers like super strength? Or bullets bouncing off your chest? Perhaps the ability to fly? Or can a regular person with the super heart and the brains to match become on the outside what he has been on the inside all along? Hi, this is Matthew Apps, and I'm the host of a monthly internet radio program covering the adventures of Steel, the only human member of the Superman family of characters to wear the air shield. It's called The Armoured Hero Steel, a John Henry Irons podcast. On the show, as well as looking at his adventures, I also take a look at the ads and letters in Steel's book, briefly look at what's happening in the rest of the Super Family, and even take a closer look at people that are important to the character of Steel, from the people that worked on his book, to supporting characters, including heroes, villains, and even family members. Check it out every month at www.thefanofsteel.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. The first story is the longest in the issue, coming in at 10 pages. To Save a World was written by Marv Wolfman, with art by Carmen Infantino and Larry Malstead. The story starts with an ominous black pyramidal ship rocketing through space, as easily as skateboarders slide from corner to corner. It lands near Fairfax, USA, and is immediately set upon by U.S. military forces. A door in the ship slides open, and the flying buttress asks why they attacked without reason. Meanwhile, at Hamilton Junior High... Alexander Hamilton My name is Alexander Hamilton Christopher King's buddy Rob tells him there's some crazy rumor about a spaceship right outside town. Christopher dials H-E-R-O into his magical dial and becomes Mega Boy. In a full body suit and mask made up of purples and violets, he can shoot mega blasts, powerful enough to propel him through the sky. I bet nothing can stop me now. At the same time, Victoria Grant's dial locket glows, 
so she knows Christopher is in action. The dial gives her a costume that looks like the sun. I bet this comes complete with solar powers. I've become Sunspot. They fly right into Flying Buttress, but the ship itself urges them to stop. They land and enter the pyramid, which is also called Glunk. That's right. It's the Galactic Logistics Unit for Navigation and Knowledge. You know, Glunk. After apologizing for Flying Buttress's aggressive behavior, Glunk explains that his world is in danger from the dreaded Gardanian forces. In order to survive, they have to find three control cylinders that the evil Gardanians ejected onto Earth. They are protected by robot sentries. Please help us if we do not retrieve those cylinders in the next three hours. Our planet will be doomed. Even at solar speed, it takes Sunspot 15 minutes to fly from Fairfax to the Everglades, where she finds the control unit and the robot sentry, who has the power to manipulate trees and vines to capture her. Her power can only last an hour, and she's been struggling long enough to use up most of that time. One last chance. Have to increase my internal heat. She manages to dry out the vines and branches, escape, and burn the robot to slag just in time. Meanwhile, Megaboy finds the second device located near the Stony Heaven nuclear plant. His mega power save him from an attack. If that punch had connected, yikes! Megaboy manages to maneuver the robot sentry to the edge of a cliff. That's right, Shouterhead. Keep coming just a little further. And the robot crashes into many, many pieces. The glunk picks up Christopher and takes him to the Everglades, where they gather up Vicky, and they all head to Egypt. They puzzle over their dial's inability to turn them back into heroes, but deduce rightly that the dials have to charge up for an hour in between uses, just as each use only lasts for an hour. The last MacGuffin cylinder, I mean control cylinder, is in the Sphinx. Actually, it appears to be the Sphinx itself. But fortunately, Color Commando and Ice appear on the scene. Ice, who is quite different from the Ice that eventually joins the Justice League, figures out that this is not the real Sphinx, meaning they can blast it to smithereens, which they do. Glunk is excited by this turn of events. Earthlings, thank you. Our world is safe. Glunk then asks if there's anything they want as a reward. Ice allows is how the adventure was enough, and there's really nothing they can ask for. But Color Commando disagrees. He has to give us a ride home. I don't think the bus to Fairfax stops around here. <laughs> no, the story actually ends with ha, 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 and ha. All right, so as my friend Trennis Magnus would say, what did I think of it? How can you even ask that? The story had glunk. Glunk for crying out loud. It was glunktastic. Glunktabulous. Glunkerific. No, actually, I did like this one. I like the epic scope of it, the sweep of it. We fight in three locations, a nearby nuke plant, the Everglades, and then Egypt. And I did like the plot twist that this was actually friendly aliens. Because the dark pyramid looks pretty ominous on the first page. And the sentry, the flying buttress, is a dark, 
armored-up, bruiser-looking being. So the twist that these weren't the enemy, but these were the people in need, that worked for me. I also like the fact that it took Sunspot 15 minutes to travel to the Everglades. Now, we don't know exactly what solar speed is, except that it's obviously not the speed of light. But if she was anywhere in the Midwest or up the East Coast, it could be a thousand miles to the Everglades, which puts her at 4,000 miles an hour, which is really, really fast. But Wolfman points out that even really, really fast, travel would not be instantaneous. It does take time to travel in this story. And that, that stood out to me, reading it here at my advanced age. In terms of the costumes and the characters, Mega Boy's purple and violet and red numbers is pretty good. Way better than Chris's other one, Color Commando. That one is a white bodysuit with black boots and trunks, one black sleeve, a rainbow belt, and one rainbow glove. And grenades strapped to his chest. So yeah, for Vicky, her ice costume is a nice flowy white dress with blue-black gloves, boots, and a cape. But I like her sunspot one more, which is a very simple orange and yellow. But the design is nice, and her blonde hair works well with the color scheme. I like that Marv Wolfman was able to layer in just a bit of backstory here, or at least world-building. I guess in in terms of the hour-long duration of powers, and then the, the resting period. So we're learning about the rules at the same time that the characters are. And that's always a good choice, you know, when you can manage that in a story. I like the joke at the end about the bus trip from Egypt back to Fairfax. But I think the greater question is, how do they explain their absence from school for that long? How lax is the security at Hamilton Junior High? Maybe that's part of the wish-fulfillment aspect that drove Dial H for Hero. Not only can the dial turn you into a superhero at any time, you also get to miss school with no consequences whatsoever. But that is one of the advantages of writing a book squarely aimed at the, I don't know, 8- to 14-year-old market. You can drop plot points and feature MacGuffins, and nobody really notices. Like the attack on the pyramid ship by U.S. military forces in the first sequence of the story. U.S. forces who never reappear in the story again. But so what? It's adventure comics. It was an adventure story. And you know what? It was adventurous. Mission accomplished. Let's take a break here, play one more promo, and when we come back, we'll cover both of the shorter stories in the issue. The Modern Life Podcast Network focuses on technology, lifestyle, business, sports, and culture. Our modern lives can be hectic, demanding one day and relaxing the next. Our hosts discuss the issues facing our modern lives and provide the answers and ideas to make the journey through life and business a bit easier. Find your new favorite podcast at modernlifepodcastnetwork.com. Modern issues, modern discussions. And we're back again. The second story is a seven-pager titled The Red Death. It was written by Marv Wolfman, with art by Carmen Infantino and Dennis Jensen. 
we start in the small city of Fairfax. Usually, only the sporadic chirping of blue jays jars the quiet nights, but this evening's peace is shattered by something far more menacing than the singing of hungry birds. We have a white-clad dude who can turn himself invisible, being chased by police officers. But the heroes Grasshopper and Doomster arrive on the scene, and they don't actually capture the guy, but they did stop the robbery and retrieve the case that he was attempting to steal. They then report to the cops, including Christopher's detective father, who doesn't recognize him in his costume. And down a dark alley, a man clad in red with a skull and crossbones insignia on his chest wonders where all these heroes are coming from. But no matter how many heroes arrive in Fairfax, they won't be able to stop him. We then move to the hallways of Hamilton Junior High. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton! Where it's midterms week, and Christopher King just moved to town last week, so he's worried that he's going to fail them all. Especially after his teacher, Mr. Wilder, finds a comic book, or as he calls it, this literary track I discovered in Mr. King's desk. But as the test is ready to start, the wall of the classroom melts, and the Red Death, yes, he's the dude from the alley, steps through the wall and threatens to use his decay touch on Mr. Wilder. In the confusion, Chris and Vicky dial themselves up into Composite Man and Twilight, Mistress of the Dark. What? More superheroes? Where are you all coming from? Red Death manages to escape with the teacher after caving in the floor of the classroom to distract the heroes. Composite Man sends copies of himself throughout the city, all looking for Mr. Wilder, who we see is hidden in a faraway underground lab. Red Death takes off his mask, revealing a face that Mr. Wilder recognizes. You! Good heavens! You're Hal Kramer from college! We took lab together, but you were... Expelled for cheating? For copying your notes, Wilder. They said he'd never amount to anything, blah, blah, blah. Looking to cure old age, blah, blah, blah. Accidentally discovered the secret to actually age things. To decay whatever I touched. I realized I had the power to gain vengeance on all who had ever mocked me. Which does include Mr. Wilder. But one of the duplicates has discovered the location, and Twilight shoots her darkness ray at the villain, so he can't see. But that is not a problem for Red Death. He does not need to see to grab the duplicate with his bare hands and decay it. But at just the right moment, Composite Man recalls the duplicate, which causes... My hands! They touch together! No! My hands! My withered, powerless hands! See, his hands have the power to decay things, and when they touched each other, each hand decayed the other one into not working. Detective King arrives on the scene, also wondering how two more heroes appeared in his town, and one of them calls him by name. There's something fishy going on here, and one way or another, I'm going to find out what it is. And then later in the day, back at Hamilton Junior High, My name is Alexander Hamilton. Mr. Wilder announces that he is in no shape to give a midterm today, which is great news for Christopher King. I didn't have time to study anyway. So, to ask Trennis's question, what did I think of this one? Well, 
For one thing, there was continuity from the first story to the second. Both the lead criminal and lead police officer take note of the increase in heroic activity in Fairfax. And although the plot itself was pretty standard, disgruntled scientists seeking vengeance on those who've mocked him or doubted him, tying it into the school was a nice touch. In terms of the costumes, not bad. Grasshoppers in shades of green, and Doomster is in purple with yellow lightning bolts on his costume. But maybe I'm biased in a Latverian sort of way, but Doomster as a name for a lightning character? I don't know. Normally I wouldn't criticize the creator of a character like this, but the guy who came up with Doomster is an 18-year-old from the University of Connecticut. So dude, you could have done better. Red Death looks pretty cool, and I really like the scene where he's holding his mask in his hand. That's just not a pose that's really common in comics, but it really worked here. Composite Man had a good look, blue and white, while Twilight was a bit of a miss for me, blue, purple, and red, but she was created by a 12-year-old. And to be honest, that was probably better than what that 18-year-old at UConn came up with. I do see sort of a pattern here in these first two stories, at least. Each of our characters transforming into two heroes for the story. One set of characters for only a couple pages, and then one, one set for a longer period, maybe three or four or five pages. So I think you can see who the writers or the editor had more faith in as a character in terms of carrying the story. One little thing I need to add here, the comic that the teacher, Mr. Wilder, finds in Chris's desk is clearly a Teen Titans book. And Crisp whispers to his friends that it's a number one. You know how much that's worth already? So here we have. We can trace the start of the speculation boom to 1981 with Marv Wolfman promoting a story by Marv Wolfman. Shame, shame, shame. Actually, I thought that was a pretty funny gag. And then we end with another seven-page story, The Silver Fog Rolls In. It was again written by Marv Wolfman, with art again by Carmen Infantino and Dennis Jensen. The title character, by the way, The Silver Fog, is the mist-like character from the start of the prior story. So it's sort of a two-parter, or at least it's sort of a sequel to that story. And that guy, The Silver Fog, was created by science fiction legend Harlan Ellison. What I love about this is that they list the ages of the creators when they have them, and I've, I've pointed out a few, and mostly they run from 11 to 19. Except for the 46-year-old science fiction veteran Harlan Ellison. There has to be a story about him pitching something to DC at some point, or maybe him knowing Wolfman or someone else at the company, or maybe just seeing this ad at a convention of some kind. There, there's got to be a story of how Harlan Ellison submitted to Dial H for Hero. But however the Silver Fog got into this story, the story does start with a girls' basketball game, and Vicky King sinks the winning basket. The kids head to a neighborhood pizza place to hang out, where Brad tries to impress Vicky, seeing as they're both sports stars at the school. I'm the only four-letter man at Hamilton Junior High. She tells him his four letters are probably J-E-R-K and tells him she's hanging out with Chris. 
After all, I like him. Meanwhile, across the city of Fairfax, police again run into the mist-based character from before. Get away from me before you force me to use the full power of the Silver Fog. He can alter his density, letting their bullets pass right through him. He tells the cops he doesn't want to hurt them. Next time we meet, leave me be. Once I get what I need, you'll never see the Silver Fog again. It turns out that the Silver Fog was created via an accident at, are you listening fans of the Flash TV show? A particle accelerator! He has been stealing the components he needs to create a machine to recover his, his natural solid form. Otherwise, he will continue to become more and more apart. At the King's house, at Christopher's house, Detective King gets called into a crime scene where the Silver Fog has been spotted. He departs, and Windsong and Captain Electron arrive quickly on the scene. Captain Electron's energy powers, combined with Windsong's wind power, are able to hold the fog in place and blast him with energy. Which is exactly what the villain needed, it turns out. Wait, I feel different. Please, listen to me. Use your powers against me again. Captain Electron is confused, but he does what's asked. Your Electron Blast is curing me, and if I'm cured, you won't have to battle me again. A few more blasts, and he is solid again. You've cured me, my friend, and in doing so, you've saved my life. He still has his powers, but they're no longer killing him. And he willingly goes along with the police to atone for what he's done, to pay back everyone he's hurt. Now, during the battle, a moving van got blasted off the road, and the drivers find the detective as he's putting Silver Fog into the police car. You gotta help us. We was delivering furniture to a Mr. Gregory King, and now it's all destroyed. Well, you just found him, guys. I'm Detective Gregory King. At which point, the two moving van guys faint. We later learn that the Silver Fog is making restitution to everyone he damaged, including replacing the king's furniture. Mrs. King is excited that they're getting new furniture and credits the Silver Fog for their good fortune. But Detective King corrects her. No, honey, it's those two mystery heroes who cured him. I wish I knew who they were just to thank them. So thank you, Trennis Magnus. What did I think of this? I like this. I like the bits of continuity we get in all three of these stories, the the building nature of the narrative the continued presence of new heroes in town, in addition to the Silver Fog storyline being paid off here. And similar to the first story, where we had the aliens who turn out not to be villains but victims, here we get a very sympathetic villain. So again, we see the confluence of Bronze Age DC and pitching a book for junior high kids. Stories with not much darkness, stories with some humor, stories with a sense of fun and stories with Marv Wolfman's sense of drama. Almost melodrama, but not quite. The Silver Fog, by the way, has a great costume. It's, it's pretty much, you know, monochromatic, you know, silver-white. But the cape, the angles on his helmet, it's all good stuff. As far as the heroes go, eh, Captain Electron is in a pretty standard red and yellow suit. Sort of like Sunboy, but without the chess logo. And we have Windsong. Long, white, flowy outfit with interesting green piping and a white cape, and her hair's white. But the outfit also features a deep, 
deep V-cut in the front, down close to her belly button. I'm giving the creator the benefit of the doubt that he, and it was a he, a 17-year-old he, as a matter of fact, that he didn't know he was creating a costume for a junior high student. Or maybe it did. It was 35 years ago. It was a different time. By the way, I grew up in suburban Maryland outside of Washington, D.C., and there is a Fairfax in Virginia. It's another Washington suburb. But I don't think that Fairfax, Virginia fits the criteria of being a small city even in the early 80s. It's basically suburban Washington. So I'm not really sure where this Fairfax is. And also, there's no way that the movers would not know how to find real-life Fairfax. That was one of the little ongoing jokes, that the moving van didn't know where this, this small town was. Now, if I were J. David Weeder, I'd spend a few hours on Google Maps, cross-referencing every Hamilton Junior High. Alexander Hamilton! With every small city named Fairfax. And I'd give you exact latitude and longitude for this fictional city. But there's only one J. David Weir. And he's not me. At the very end of that last story, they also mention that in addition to seeking out new you know, heroes and villains and, 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 and costumes, they were also soliciting ideas for designing the king's furniture. So they were really outsourcing everything in this story to their teenage readers. The verdict on Adventure Comics 479. I didn't know what to expect with this one. I remember reading some of these Dial H stories back in the day and mostly enjoying them. I was probably almost too old when these comics came out originally, and I'm just a few years older than that now. But this comic did what it was supposed to do. It entertained. And there was a hostess ad with Wonder Woman taking on the Chocolate Baron, a crook whose love of chocolatey goodness has led him to monopolize everything chocolate he can control. And that was pretty awesome. It all adds up to make this a definite quarter bin steal. That wraps up my coverage of Adventure Comics 479, bringing episode 71 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close. In episode 72, we're jumping back into this current millennium. We'll be looking at Birds of Prey number 39 from DC Comics again, cover dated March 2002. And if all goes well, it won't be just me talking about it. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen. And I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. What's your name, man? Professor, Professor Allen! Allen!